When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. I don't really give a sod what they think. I want them to do their job properly. Four. 14.99, mate, of my own money. Three. Well, that whole light at the end of the tunnel thing is always a problem, isn't it? You never know whether it's daylight or it's a train coming. I spent a lot of my time as, as a young academic when I should have been going out and forming my personality, studying these things. One. We have liftoff. It's blast off number seven, lock and load. Welcome again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So, Rishi Sunak's unveiled his big economic enchilada. The Chancellor's splashed the cash, as the British government throws caution to the wind trying to reboot our post-Covid economy. But the really pressing news is that you finally had your hair cut. So how did it go, and how shocked was your hairdresser after you broke into his salon through the window with your lockdown bouffant? Screaming, with my tresses down to my knees. Well, it was, you know, it was a huge, huge relief, and I think everyone was very glad. My hairdresser wasn't going to wear his mask, and I wasn't going to wear mine, because we both felt happy with that. And I think I Consenting think, adults. Consenting adults. I do think some of the other measures in the salon are a bit off-putting, and I think Planet Normal wants us to get back to the old normal, not the new normal. So I won't put people off. But my my really big breakthrough, Liam, was that we went out to dinner last night and apparently have to wear shoes and clothes. What, you don't normally or what? (laughs) Well, at home. (laughs) What kind of restaurants do you go to? (laughs) Well, I've just been wandering around at home, you know, my my fit flops and my horrible old slippers. So actually having to squash my feet. I think think my feet have splayed during lockdown. But it was, no, it was lovely to get out. I have to say... On the train to London to go to the hairdresser, the last time I was on a ghost train is in Barry Island Pleasure Park in 1972. And this, Liam, was a ghost train. No, there was no one on it. And for the first time, I got the chills about the state we're in, really, because I took my mask to wear on the train because, of course, that's now compulsory. There was no need. I had about six carriages to myself. And we got off at, at King's Cross. All the shops at the station, normally it's thronging, you know what it's like, absolutely deserted. And the cab driver who took me to the hairdresser, he said, you know, he's waited two hours on the rank for one fare. He said it's an absolute catastrophe. So I think for the first time I felt scared, you know, that it's not opened up yet, has it? And it really needs to get going now or we're going to be in big trouble. The government should really be saying you've done very well. It's fine. It's fine. You can come out. Don't worry. But they seem to be incapable of making that admission. And why is that, do you think? Well, the deaths are very, very much focused. The unfortunate deaths on elderly people, on those with specific symptoms that make them more vulnerable anyway. I think the government is finding it really hard to visibly change its mind, as Mervyn King suggested that it would in the current political climate recently in Planet Normal. And I guess this is one reason the Chancellor, 
has just delivered a mini budget. Mm. He's literally just sat down in the Commons and we're recording this mm. straight after. Lots of emphasis on job creation, lots of emphasis on getting the economy moving, huge focus on youth unemployment, this tsunami of unemployment that we've been discussing on the podcast. What did you think of the statement, Alison? Well, I think, forget the magic money tree, Liam. Rishi's found a magic money forest, hasn't he? I mean, (laughs) it was, you know, money over here, money over there. Look, I've got a 20-year-old son and a 24-year-old daughter. They are absolutely in the blast area of, you know, the generational horror that's coming down the road towards them. So I was pleased. I was really pleased to see him taking measures to boost the hospitality industry. My daughter often frequently has casual work as a waitress. The eat out to help out. Eat out to help out. We get a tenner off lunch, don't we, between Mondays to Wednesdays. That's right. And I think, you know, there's a bonus scheme for firms that keep furloughed workers. I suppose what I would say to you, because you're our, you know, you're our top economist. I mean, last week, Boris said in a speech, I am not a communist. Now, those are not the most reassuring words I've ever heard from a Conservative Prime Minister. But COVID is clearly shifting the Johnson government leftwards. How does this differ from socialism, Liam? Well, I certainly would back some of the activist measures that Rishi's come out with. As you say, a big job creation scheme. He's cut stamp duty for six months from today on properties valued up to half a million quid. Uh, He's confirmed a £2 billion job revolution quotes for for younger workers, subsidising employers taking on younger workers, the so-called Kickstarter scheme. And the furlough bonus, as you said, £1,000 for firms if they bring back furloughed workers full-time until January. But this all adds up to borrowing this year of £320 billion Mm. at least. Wow. Even if the economy recovers... That's a 15% of GDP addition to our national debt in a single year. That's far more than we borrowed in the year after the financial crisis. What's going on, Alison, is basically the government is issuing debt, so-called government guilt, and the Bank of England's buying. That's circular financing. That can't go on forever. I don't think Sunak had a choice. He had to do something activist because we're facing high unemployment. But there will come a time, and that time will come soon, when there's going to be a huge showdown, I hope, between the government and the Bank of England, where the Bank of England says, we are simply not going to keep buying government bonds in this circular Mm -hmm. Zimbabwe economic-style fashion. How much is this the sticking plaster of state subsidies? I mean, look, I don't understand all the detail, but you've got the this sort of you know job creation scheme for the under twenty fives. All of us who've got kids that age are grateful for that. But you're going to have these side effects, aren't you? So the young unemployed get taken on at the expense of older workers, maybe lots of people our sort of age who've been made redundant. Women returners. That's one of my big themes. So will employers be incentivized to take on the very young at the expense of the older and more experienced? You've put your finger on it, Alison. There are three main problems that economists identify with these job creation schemes. And we had them all through the the 60s, Mm. the 70s, another big slew of them in the 80s. And 19s. There was that I spent, work start scheme in the 90s, I remember. I spent a lot of my time as, as a young academic when I should have been going out and forming my personality, study, <laughs> stud, studying these things. And you, first thing you have is called the dead weight effect. That's where the state pays firms to take people on that they would have taken mm. on anyway. Then you've got what you just referred to, which is called the substitution effect, where the state takes on certain kind of workers that is subsidising at the expense 
of other workers. And those workers tend to be older workers. Then you have the displacement effect. That's where big firms that can afford to take on more workers and then get those workers at a subsidized rate get an additional competitive advantage over the smaller firms that can't expand their workforce. So the smaller firms get hammered. And all these three things detract from the good that the government is trying to do. Look, we are already at 9 10% unemployment. Even if two-thirds of furloughed people are kept on full-time, 9 million of them in total, we're going to get up to 13 14 15% unemployment, as we've often said, unfortunately, on Planet Normal. The government has to be seen to be doing something, but in the end, I'm afraid, targeted job subsidy schemes, there's a long history of them not actually working all that well. But I guess, you know, as you say, he has to do something because it is very, very dire. The one thing I took issue with Rishi Sunak about was he he said, if they make their businesses safe, demand will be there and be there quickly. Now, my experience in the last few days since the easing of lockdown is that if they don't go back to the normal normal, not the new normal, then people will be put off. Going to the shops is an absolute nightmare. I went to get something for my daughter the other day and it's going to two shops which took four hours. So the retailing, that retail hospitality are not going to recover. Now, Liam, I've got a bit of a bombshell here now. Go for it. Coming to the stamp duty, I have just purchased a book called Home Truths by Liam Halligan. Who's that? Fourteen ninety nine, mate, of my own money. Now I, I haven't given you I one for free, you fool. No, we've got to stimulate. We've got to stimulate the economy. So I'm actually purchased. Okay. Looking at this, uh, this, this stamp duty cut. This seems to me to be long overdue. The house prices in this country are absolutely ruinous, aren't they? And when I talk to my daughter, who's in her mid twenties, she says, "Mum, none of my lot can ever imagine being able to own anything." So this is this will do some good, will it? This is the one move in the budget that I hope becomes permanent. Stamp duty is a tax on moving. It's a tax on people who are buying homes when they're scrambling to get every pound they possibly can together. Anyway, it's a very distorting tax. I certainly hope that this remains a permanent fixture. He says it's going to happen until the end of March next year. That will certainly get the housing market moving. In the end, though... If they're not building enough homes, that's the the message of my book, Home Truths. Which I, which I shall shortly be opening. So, you know. <laughs> You've got to put your tea somewhere when you're on your sitting by your desk. <laughs> review, review, review next week. Stand by, listeners. Stand by. No, I, I'm, I am looking for, I, you know, I genuinely am because I think that housing, that seems to be when you look abroad, you think we, you know, we make a pig's ear of it, don't we? It's so, we it's so, it's so prohibitive. You know, Englishman's home is this castle. I think so many people just want to have a, a home. And I think one thing I've noticed is that particularly in a lot of young couples, they don't want to have a, a baby until they have a house. So that's pushing back the kind of conception time until well into their 30s. And then they end up running into fertility. There's some very shocking numbers about fertility being linked to the shortage of homes. Mm. You know, we are the nation of homeowners, yet our home ownership rate in the UK is now below the EU average. I remember the first flat I bought, 69,500, you know, and it seemed like an absolute king's ransom then. Well, you know, you you, you, you know, you, you can't buy a shoebox for that now, can you? You can't buy a, sho- a shoebox for that. But, but let's move on because I wanted to talk about your Telegraph column this week, which really hit me smack between the eyes. 
You didn't clap for the NHS's 72nd birthday, Alison. You have many kind things to say about NHS staff, mm. but you're concerned about what you call Britain's coming cancer crisis. Yeah, I don't know if you saw there was a panorama on Monday. I did. Where they good BBC work. Let's give them credit where it's due. That was a good programme. Credit where credit's due. An excellent panorama programme on Monday where they predicted that there would be as many as 35,000 excess cancer deaths as a result of corona. Now, my reaction was, well, it's not really just as a result of the virus, is it? It's a result of the fact the health service shut down. Didn't shut down in France, didn't shut down in Germany. Over here, I don't know if you've tried to ring a GP, Liam, but you get a kind of... 10-minute recorded message which explains that if you haven't got any COVID symptoms, just please go away. You know, it's not convenient for us to see us. And I've been hearing more and more from Telegraph readers saying awful stories. I mean, really terrible stories about people in great pain. And what's happened, I mean, if you think that two million screening appointments have not been sent out by the NHS since the 23rd of March. And that means thousands of cancers will have been missed at an early stage when the treatment is is most effective. And I heard from an eminent hospital consultant. I mean, we had Carol Sikora on the programme as well. This is his theme. And this guy says, the novelty factor has made it politically unacceptable for people to die of COVID-19, but acceptable that more people die of everything else. I mean, can you imagine? Blimey. I mean, I was really taken in the programme. I'm glad you picked up on the programme in your column. The young woman, Wendy Peak, mother of teenage daughters, mm. tragic case. As you called the lovely 31-year-old mum of one, Kelly Smith, whose chemotherapy was paused mm. against her will as the lockdown mm. began, giving an interview before she subsequently died. Incredibly yeah. poignant moment. I do think Carol Sakura was really early to this, as we featured in Planet Normal a few weeks ago. And it's also people not presenting at the NHS with symptoms or with their own concerns because they're scared of going to hospital. Well, they have been scared. Yes, it's true. That's That's been a strong element of it. But then you've also had this absolute, you know, doctors disappearing, can't be seen for love nor money. And I guess the question I want to ask is, how can it be that minimum wage supermarket workers are managing to greet their customers through Perspex screens, but highly rewarded GPs can't seem to do that for their patients? And I was talking to a veteran GP and she was appalled. She said a lot of her colleagues have been lazy and absent and all these video consultations you can have she said they're they're not much use Liam you can't spot Mm. meningitis you can't Mm. spot serious gynecological problems or stomach issues so there's going to be this great tsunami of very very seriously ill people and I think it's another failure of the bureaucratic class the government class really because senior members of the NHS, Public Health England, the government, they lost all sense of proportion and it became the National Covid service, not the National Health Service. And they were waiting and waiting for this corona juggernaut to come in and they threw everyone else with other illnesses under the bus. And I'm sorry, but I do absolutely admire those NHS staff who are in the front line. But this is this is a this is disgraceful. And we're going to be seeing this, you know, in the months and years ahead. This story is just going to run and run. I agree. Another another instance of this lockdown, as we've been arguing for a long time, Alison, causing more deaths, unfortunately, than it actually prevents. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast, 
to tell you about another Telegraph show. Mine! As the Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! So let's move on to our latest Planet Normal guest. So I talked to Trevor Phillips, London-born. His family's originally from what was British Guiana. Trevor's a well-known broadcaster, a former Labour London mayoral candidate, a formidable anti-racism campaigner. Now, Trevor's been really outspoken over recent weeks when it comes to Black Lives Matter and the state of UK race relations. And he says a key thing that we must always do is not confuse the UK with the United States. The truth of the matter is that we need to separate what is happening in the United States and what is happening here in certain respects. And because I've been coming and going to the United States for the best part of 50 years, most of my family lives there. I have four sisters in New York, a brother in Florida and so on. I can see what the similarities are, what the differences are. In the United States, there is a very, very deep rift between African-Americans and pretty much the rest of the United States. Here, I think the situation is quite different for a number of reasons, and I'll just name two. First of all, black people in this country are not as separated from everybody else as they are in the United States. We have the largest single group, proportionately and possibly absolute numbers, of mixed-race black-white children anywhere in the Western world. And the only group, by the way, which has been formed not because of slavery or oppression, but, but by choice since the Second World War, with the Windrush generation, as we now call it, marrying into the local white population. And that's a very different kind of background. And secondly, I think that the situation with the police though it is by no means a good one, it is not lethal in the way it is in the United States. When I go to visit my brother in Florida, I remember this so clearly from three years ago. I went for a run in the morning. I came back and he said, how's the run? I said, great. He said, how did you come back? I told him the route I'd followed and he said, don't do that again. And I said, why? And he said, you ran across somebody's private property and down here we have a law called Stand Your Ground, which allows people to shoot you if you cross their property. Crikey. And down here, you are not Trevor Phillips, harmless Brit, former chairman of this, that and the other newspaper writer. You're just another black guy mm. on my property. Yeah. And you will get shot. Yeah. So it's a very, very different situation. In recent weeks, the police have come in for a lot of criticism, haven't they, particularly the Met now. Mm. Where are you on this very contentious issue of stop and search? The former Surrey Police and Crime Commissioner Kevin Hurley recently pointed out, criticised for it, that uh, in his view, stop and search is largely about stopping black-on-black crime. Do you think that's a valid point to make? There is clearly a problem. And it may actually simply be a problem of perception. And when we look at the data, we will find that actually what we think is happening is not what's really happening. But the first thing is 
we need to deal with the problem of perception and it, where clearly is a perception that's been created that people of color and particularly black men are more likely to be stopped and stopped in a way that is not courteous, that is not founded mm. in some proper crime fighting activity. And, you know, we've all been there. I mean, it, it, it does seem absurd to someone like me when I was in my 40s and my 50s still being stopped mm. and you hear them phoning in and that what they're doing is checking that you own the car that you have had for 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it's humiliating and it, 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 it's ridiculous. Yeah. I completely get, by the way, the tension that the police officers may feel in certain circumstances. But the truth is that this is not a sort of equal encounter. When they put on the uniform, they bear a special responsibility because they also have special powers. We have to remember we are dealing with human beings here. And yeah. it doesn't matter if you're black or white. If a police car pulls up behind you, you may be the most law-abiding citizen in the world, but none of us can escape the feeling of a slight fear yeah, your stomach in turns. that situation. And in those situations, people, ordinary people, do things that are not, you know, not normal. And you might then say afterwards, why didn't you stop and so on. But look, let's put ourselves in that situation. Yeah. In the same way as we might say, let's put ourselves in the situation of the police officer who knows that he or she may be stopping a vehicle that has weapons in it. So everybody just needs to back off and take a breath here and stop taking positions, whether they are, by the way, verbally attacking the police or, in the case of the police, being overly defensive. So... The general point I want to make is that there is a problem and it has to be recognized. The second point, I have a company now that does data science and this is the kind of thing that we study a lot. I think we need to look at the data carefully and understand what is going on more generally. Coming back to the question you asked me, there is absolutely no doubt that if you are thinking about what is the greatest danger to a young black man today in the capital, it is not the police. It is danger from somebody else in a gang. And that person is very likely to be a person of color. And I think that whilst we have to get the police to do the right thing and behave in the right way, let us not forget that young black men are dying I mean, just dying in hundreds every year, never mind the ones who are being injured and maimed. And that is still the biggest issue for me. You know, I find it really moving when you say that. I find it really moving. Um, because I know by saying that, you are drawing criticism onto yourself. Why can't we have a conversation about black-on-black -black crime without even you with your your background, your ethnicity, your impeccable anti-race discrimination. What kind of a situation have we got ourselves into here? Shall I say one thing about this, Liam, which I think nobody's going to like? This is what racism really looks like. This is what racism really looks like. The, the reason that it's very difficult for anybody to say this is because 
the voice of people for whom one single dimension of race relations, i.e. conflict, is most important, is always amplified by a media which is basically dominated by white people and particularly a white liberal consciousness which is absolutely consumed by guilt. So almost anything to do with black people must involve them showing us, and I mean the editors of newspapers, the reporters and so on, showing us how much they care about black people. Uh, it, it astonishes me. It absolutely astonishes me. People who in any other circumstance report fairly, analyze properly, when it comes to issues of race, abandon all of that in order to try and persuade me, a black person, how much they care about me. The truth is, I don't care about that. I don't really give a sod what they think. I want them to do their job properly. You know, we now have a media which for two or three weeks absolutely lionized Black Lives Matter, the organization rather than the idea, didn't do any of the normal reporting that it would do in what the movement constitutes, what it believes and so on. When it comes out that some parts of the organization are essentially far left, have been hijacked by extremists, everybody suddenly drops, not just the organization. They stop reporting on the Black Lives Movement idea because actually it's all too awkward. We can't make progress that way. We've got to be honest, we've got to be generous, but we've also got to be accurate about what's going on. You did shoot to prominence working for London Weekend Television, LWT, back in really... (laughs) A, a golden age of current affairs, long-form political interviews, yeah. hard-hitting news programmes, the sort of news programmes I grew up watching, basically, yeah. on, on the BBC and, and ITV. But now it seems our mainstream broadcasters have lost their way because as there's been an increase in on-screen ethnic diversity, yeah. in my view, there's been yeah. a real reversal, a major reversal in cognitive diversity, socioeconomic differences between top decision makers, particularly at the BBC. I put it to you, Trevor, that if you are from a sort of inner London or inner city background as a white person that grew up in a completely multi-ethnic environment, you know a lot more about race relations than somebody who grew up in a posh village in the middle of Gloucestershire or something. (laughs) Uh, You don't have to put it to me, Liam. It's just true. And unfortunately, the additional problem is that the person who grows up in, let's say, Islington or in Harlesden, who happens to be white, is probably a bit less shy in looking at these arguments about race with a sort of clear eye and without personal guilt because that person has grown up next to people who are black or Asian. In and out their houses, in and out the whole their houses, And doesn't have to feel that they've got to demonstrate something about themselves when they're reporting on these issues. Whereas a person who has been to, you know, one of these rather shishi schools and who has just discovered black people in their 20s or 30s and feels the need, figuratively speaking, to take the knee every time they meet a person of colour I understand how difficult it is for them. I really do. But the problem is that I haven't got time to educate those guys. What I really want is for the media to report honestly, 
and comprehensively and not to bleed all over me. What I want them to do is to tell me what is really going on. I could talk to you for ages, Trevor, but I'd have to ask you, how do you think Keir Starmer's doing? And are you <laughs> hopeful that you'll ever rejoin the Labour Party? It's been a huge part of your life. Yeah, You've obviously been suspended because of concerns about comments you've made historically about the Muslim population, apparently. Do you see light at the end of the tunnel under Keir Starmer? Could you come back into the Labour fold? <laughs> well, that whole light at the end of the tunnel thing is always a problem, isn't it? You never know whether it's daylight or it's a train coming. Um, <laughs> the, the, the answer is that it is alleged that I made comments that was Islamophobic and racist. Part of the reason is that I drew attention to the fact that the grooming and child trafficking, effectively, scandals in some towns in England, particularly in the north, had a very definite ethnic component. And it was thought that this was unacceptable. Problem is that everybody in those Labour seats, because principally this was Labour seats, absolutely knew what was going on. And it was to the detriment of the Labour Party that we appeared to be ready to be silent about what was going on. And it looked as though our party, the Labour Party, was trying to protect people who had done the most awful things. And from my point of view, the best thing for the Labour Party would be to speak honestly and openly about what had gone on. And the other allegation was that I'd written a pamphlet about 50 years of race relations, and I had mentioned Enoch Powell. Now... (laughs) You know, How could you not mention Enoch Powell? You asked my question. Exactly, Liam. I, I have not been able to get an answer from the party on any of these questions. We, the last exchange we had was at the beginning of March. Up until now, I do not know whether my suspension is going to be turned into expulsion. I have no idea what's going on. I have not had any exchange with Keir on these matters. I have a great deal of respect for the person who's now come in as the new general secretary. And, uh, you know, from my point of view, yeah, I, look, Liam, I'm a, I'm a loyal party member. You know, I keep my gob shut. I'm not going to go around slagging off the party. All I would do is to say, could they please just get on with it so that we can all get on with our lives? Either they throw me out or they solve this problem. Because at the moment, there is a practical issue. It means that there are some things that I cannot do because this thing is hanging over my head. It had been my hope that the firm which I built up, the data science firm I built up, which does an enormous amount of work for local authorities, for police forces, for uh, private sector retailers and so on, some of which is to do with analysing the behaviours and preferences of ethnic groups. We have some of the some technology that is unique in the world, simply because we spent a long time building it up, which I think would have been extremely helpful in analysing what is happening with COVID. I am pretty sure that we would have been able to predict the outbreak in Leicester. Wow. But because of this particular controversy, it was thought that our technology could not be used. And at the moment, you know, we've got the machines. Because you've been cancelled effectively. Essentially, yeah. So we have technology that nobody in the world has. We cannot use it to help prevent suffering and indeed death, particularly amongst people of minority backgrounds. 
That that's just that's just that's just crazy. Uh, it, it's not just crazy; it's criminal. It's just criminal, and frankly, between the Labour Party and, to be honest, also some of the authorities who are too cowardly to risk getting into a row, actually, we have probably allowed some people who should not have died to die. Mm. Now, I'm not going to go on about this now, but Mm. when all of this is over, I will name some names Mm. because what has happened is a scandal. Everybody says we'll be guided by the science, we'll use the science. Well, that seems to be the rule, unless and until you get to ethnic minorities, at which point ethnic politics and sectarianism become way more important than saving lives. I cannot tell you how angry I am. And thank you, thank you for saying that. When I came into political journalism in in, in the mid and late nineties, you were a, you were a huge figure. You were absolutely there at the birth of New Labour. You were a black professional, articulate person. You you know you were Labour's candidate for London Mayor. You were in the London Assembly. And the idea that Labour don't need people like you to somebody like me who wants a fabulous opposition, a lot of people listen to this podcast know we need a really good, electable, strong Labour Party to make our country work properly. It just seems so... It's student politics, the fact that you are still outside the Labour fold. Why doesn't Keir Starmer just pick up the phone and say, Trevor, hang in there, we're fixing it? Shouldn't he pick up the phone? Well, you'd have to talk to Keir about that. All I would say is there are people in the Labour Party, and unfortunately there may be a majority of the members who actually don't care that much about whether we are in government or in power. They think the most important thing is to have control over the party machinery because then they can win resolutions at conferences and tell their friends that they're in charge of the party. Well, that might be great fun, but actually it is absolutely useless to the people that the Labour Party was founded to represent working class, poor, excluded people, now ethnic minorities. What we as a party are doing is while we're indulging in fun and games and who gets to be the political education secretary of the local branch, our people are having to go to food banks. Our people are not being given advice as to whether they should shield from COVID because they belong to a particular ethnic group that is vulnerable. Our people are not being represented when it comes to issues of pay and power in their factories. The Labour Party should not be a playground for people who play at politics. If they want to do that, go and do it online. The Labour Party needs to be returned to people who genuinely want to change this country for the better and to create more equal opportunities for the people who vote for us. That's the tragedy at the moment. I mean, I'm just collateral in this particular battle, but it's a much bigger one. You know, I I hope that that's a battle that Keir wants to fight. And if it is the one he wants to fight, whether I'm in or out the party, he's always going to have my support on that. Trevor Phillips, thanks for visiting Planet Normal. Thank you, Liam. I don't quite know how normal this planet is. I I wish actually more of this planet was like yours, but um, it's been a great visit. Impressive guy, huh? Oh, 
I mean, you know, Trevor Phillips suspended from the Labour Party, Liam. I mean, in, in a sane God, world... God, they need him. In a sane God, world, they need he, him. He'd be leading the Labour Party on, oh, on Planet Normal. Should be on the he? front bench. Absolutely. Should be on the front bench. Yeah. I mean, he's just... Been, unfortunately for him, he's been the patron saint of awkward truths, hasn't he? So all this identity politics that Labour has embraced to its detriment, he challenges that. And, of course, he challenges it with immense authenticity uh, and power because, you know, he is the guy pulled over by the police, isn't he? in his 50s, humiliated, and he speaks about it so well. I tell you what jumped out at me is a great theme for Planet Normal, really, is he says, this is what racism really looks like, is all these, you know, well-meaning white media types who, you know, as he said, discovered black people in their 20s, who didn't report thoroughly as they would on any other topic on Black Lives Matters because it was all, you know, we feel your pain, you know, da-di-da. And then, of course, then it all turns out that Black Lives Matters has got some extremely troubling elements, defund the police, you know, extreme left wing, etc. And as Trevor said, now there's an awkward silence. Oh, dear, we got it wrong. We had a really interesting conversation uh, after, after the recording about how many people we knew in our in our lives from the Irish community and and the black community who had intermarried and sort of stuck together during childhood that was certainly a huge theme of of my my life as a young lad in northwest london and there is a real affinity between the the uk's various immigrant communities certainly among the working classes irish blacks jewish it's a fabulous story and 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 it's been my experience that it's often people at the bottom end of the income spectrum who are best at rubbing along just getting on with it and helping each other out as immigrant communities and that's why it really really got to me it really upset me when i saw during the brexit debate well meaning meaning media types who who know nothing about the ethnic diversity of this country to them it's a statistic saying that ordinary british people weren't good at getting along weren't good at mm. engendering good race relations of course there are some bad apples but we are successive polling evidence shows across the world we are among the most tolerant countries in the world not to disregard any of the problems that we have and the fact that we need improvement and i think it's really important as sean bailey said that we acknowledge that acknowledge progress Mm -hmm. because if you can't acknowledge progress and build on it then why why are we all here so let's finish with some messages from readers planet normal listeners How about a bit more elfin safety, a key feature of the planet normal landscape, Alison? Lim, we, we've talked about this, haven't we? I think because we were saying we were going to we're going to publish all that my mad childhood as a as a feature in the paper, but I think it's now gone to a book. It's going to be it's going to be a slim Christmas volume <laughs> because there is there. Is, if I'm ever feeling a bit low in the lockdown, a series I just, of books, a series of books. They're absolutely amazing. So this is Nick Dickinson. He says Nick says he feels blessed. He was born just after the war, even though it was a time of great austerity, because children always managed to entertain themselves without helicopter parents. And Nick says. When I was about eight years old, I decided I would build a tank. The chassis was the Silver Cross pram my baby sister still used. I found another old pram, turned it upside down, smashed a hole big enough to put a machine gun through it. I then convinced my four-year-old brother that it would be amazing for him to be the gunner in the pram tank. I put him in the silver cross, placed the old upturned pram on top. I pushed the pram tank down the hill outside our house to see how far it would go. Initially, it held its line before eventually crashing into a garden hedge and throwing my brother out. 
He was unhurt, quite happy, and next day he agreed to be the tank driver again. Now, this is the best bit. My brother survived, and I'm pleased to say he is not brain damaged, but is now a presenter on the Antiques Roadshow. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Dickinson, absolutely, you know, I mean, just marvellous, really. Pram tanks. Those were the days, Liam. Those were the days. We've got to compile this, Alison. We've got to chronicle this incredible social history. (laughs) Let's get some more tales of childhood elf and safety. I had a really good email from Colin on a slightly different subject. He complains that being pro-Brexit is, as he says, constantly portrayed as being on the right. Yet in the real world, that's not the case. He said he was born in a Labour-supporting working-class home and during the 50s and 60s, ordinary Labour voters, they backed Attlee and Gateskill. They were patriotic, respecting our history. He later met, he said, Peter Shaw and Tony Benn, Mm. those Labour giants who also firmly opposed the idea of a federal Europe. Yet despite all this, says Colin, the media and morons on Twitter say wanting to leave the EU means that you're on the right. It's just nonsense. Amen to that. Amen to that. He's lucky just to be called to be on the right. Many of us have been called to be on the extreme right. Absolutely. Yeah, lovely, lovely. Uh, coming back to the NHS scandal, Patricia Bullock said, we did our bit to protect the NHS. However, the NHS has not done its its bit to protect the millions who rely on it. Treatment cancelled, referrals ceased, hospitals sitting empty. Disgraceful. Health staff do a great job, undoubtedly, but the NHS is not fit for purpose. It's not in need of useless applause. It's in need of opening up and doing its duty. You know, Alison, it's like the third rail in British politics, isn't it? You're not allowed to talk about reforming the NHS, restructuring the NHS. I would defend with every breath the idea of free at the point of use healthcare as we have in the UK. I think that's a brilliant principle. But I would also say there are many, many different ways to deliver it. You don't need to have the world's third biggest employer with over a million staff, a big monolithic organisation. And the reality is, even though we have lots of tremendous people working in the NHS, a lot of the outcomes, particularly in terms of of cancer and the care of the elderly, our outcomes are, are pretty low by international standards among the wealthy countries, even though our cutting edge Research medicine is very much at the forefront of the world. Some of the outcomes that ordinary people are getting from the NHS for all the efforts of the staff are just not good. Actually, Rick Strange wrote to us and said, when my late father retired from the NHS in 1975, he told me there were 3,500 non-medical people in the service. He said he retired early because of frequent arguments with these people who knew nothing whatsoever about medicine. My dad predicted correctly that this part of the NHS would grow out of all proportion until its personnel outnumbered the essential doctors and nurses. Well, that's from the horse's mouth, Liam, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The bureaucracy, the multi-headed monster so there it is voyage number seven to planet normal is mission accomplished if you do want to comment on anything that we've said anything in the news over the coming days please do write to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk this podcast is free to listen to and you can do so on the telegraph website or by subscribing on your podcast app a lot of people think subscription means pay no liam and i are a very cheap date particularly now we're going to have restaurant vouchers from rishi sunak you you can get paid to take us out (laughs) 
you can get paid exactly let's 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 all go out we'll have a big slap up meal in london yes confusingly subscribing to a podcast has got nothing to do with being a subscriber to the telegraph it just means the podcast is automatically downloaded to your app every time there's a new episode so if you'd like to listen to planet normal on a smartphone or a tablet and you're not sure how to subscribe to it on an app there's now an article explaining all things podcast on the telegraph Ray. website ray and if alison pearson has learned how to do it trust me anyone anyone can do it don't forget if you're still baffled you can email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and we'll try to help and if you're not already a subscriber to the telegraph itself as a planet normal fan you can get your first 30 days free giving you access to all the telegraphs extensive news service at telegraph.co.uk forward slash normal and we'll put that link in the show notes too and thank you so much again for your positive ratings and reviews we're so thrilled and we read them all don't we good and bad but they've been mostly good (laughs) mostly really good and lots of people saying you know a dose of sanity in your week and you know I know we both feel very touched that people feel there are people out there like us and that's that's why we started this isn't it Liam so just drop us a line and leave us a rating if you can and if you don't know how to leave a rating review and you want to again email us and we'll tell you how so as we leave planet normal we speed back to our mad mad world thanks as ever to our producer Louisa Wells hooray Elliot Lampitt hooray Hooray. and our editor Theo Leloudis Hooray. hooray until next Thursday it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.